Okay, let's get started. Um, to enjoy this presentation, you should be wearing your headset and it should be blue. If you're green or red, you're not hearing me. So maybe you want to talk to your neighbor if he's green or red. Good. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks for um, showing up. Um, super delighted to be here. Um, my name is Chris Schlager. I'm the director of kernel and operating systems at Amazon. My team works on the lowest part of the software stack that runs on almost all Amazon servers. We do things like the Linux kernel, um, the Zen hypervisor, or the KVM hypervisor, or the Firecracker micro VM. And we're always also heavily involved in the development of EC2 instance types. Good. Today, I would like to take you on a deep dive into the Nitro system, specifically the security features of the Nitro system and how that can benefit you and your application and especially protect your data. So let's take a look at today's agenda. Um, I'll start off with a brief tour through the history of the Nitro system. It's now two years old. Um, and then uh, specifically I'll focus on the security aspects, obviously. Um, then I'll talk a bit about an area called confidential computing. I'll explain what I mean by that and um, how the newly announced uh, Nitro Enclave feature, we announced that yesterday, uh, can actually benefit um, your application and protection of your data. And then we'll wrap it up. So, um, as you can hear, um, AWS, uh, the reInvent conference for AWS employees is all about talking to customers. And um, as you can hear, I did a fair share of that already. I hope my voice will make it to the end of this talk. Good. With that, let's get started. So, EC2, our Elastic Cloud Compute service, was developed um, or well, was launched first time in 2006. And back then, what the development team did um, was really just taking a standard server of that time um, and then putting on the uh, Zen hypervisor and a Linux um, down zero uh, partition, essentially a little mini OS. Um, and that allowed them to take the big server and partition it into so-called logical um, servers or um, customer instances, as we call them. Um, the diagram you see here on the screen roughly shows um, how this looked like, and it also shows some of the drawbacks of this. Um, back at the time, that was state-of-the-art. Uh, I think we even kind of pushed the state-of-the-art uh, by introducing that a bit forward. Um, nevertheless, it came with a few drawbacks that we only learned later as we started to grow. Um, first and foremost, it's complex. Uh, there are a lot of moving parts here. Um, the management partition is essentially a full-blown Linux system. Um, and um, yeah, uh, one of the challenges was that the customers really want the performance. Um, and um, we could, due to something that is called the virtualization tax, only offer them 60%, uh, 70% uh, of the actual resources. So that meant if you have a server um, and it's only, uh, it's one of the largest model that usually is a single instance on that box. Um, then um, when you see it and it has uh, something like uh, 36 cores, um, then you start to wonder, well, there is no processor with 36 cores. What happened to the other 12? Uh, because the next step up would be 48, right? Uh, well, they are being used by um, what you see here, does that work? No, it doesn't. Uh, so the network emulation, the storage emulation, and all the management overhead, and, and the hypervisor takes its fair share as well. So um, it did work well. We weren't unhappy with it, but still, you know, using about 30% of the system resources and, and uh, memory uh, was uh, not as bad, but still uh, a problem as well. Um, wasn't super compelling, um, especially as we got more enterprise customers that moved from the data center and they had the big machines and then they moved to the cloud and they looked at it like, well, why can you only get me 36 CPUs when I get 48 from Intel? What's going on here? So we looked at 
what can we do to improve this situation? And um, about 2012, we started to um, um, do the first step in this direction. And this, this was probably kind of the first step towards the nitro system. We didn't call it nitro back then. Um, but what we did is, um, at that time, we had to somehow find a way to transition from one gigabit per second uplink to 10 gigabit per second uplink. And um, yeah, the risk was that when we went to 10 gigabit, the virtualization overhead, because what you see here in the networking box is a full-blown software-defined network, uh, virtual networking that had to be somehow emulated by the main CPUs of the system. And going from one gigabit to 10 gigabit probably would have increased the virtualization tax even more. So we looked around and found an offload card uh, that essentially took over most of the networking virtualization functions. So that was step number one. We moved them over. Um, well, that got us to 10 gigabit per second, but it didn't really reduce the virtualization tax much. Uh, it didn't make it worse. That was a win, but um, we still had work to do. So. Um, we looked around what we can do uh, and looked at other offload cards, uh, especially uh, storage would have been the next block to attack for us. And we got in contact with a company in Israel called Annapurna Labs. Um, we had very interesting discussions with them and um, we liked them so much that we bought the company. Um, so Annapurna Labs is now part of Amazon's hardware uh, engineering organization and they're providing the Nitro hardware technology. So they had some really interesting cards that we uh, continued to evolve and that led to um, what you see here in the picture. Um, started about 2013. Um, we looked again at networking first and the next step we did was we wanted to um, get to a world where the EBS performance is uh, significantly better and also networking latency is reduced. And the Annapurna card gave us that. Um, they, the, the card now provides a virtual networking interface um, that we call ENA, uh, Elastic Network Adapter, and that is directly attached to the instance. Um, and that's for the first instance type that came out with this technology was uh, C4. And that significantly reduced the uh, latency and the network throughput uh, was increased. So this was a good win. Um, in a third or second step uh, in that generation, we were also uh, able to increase the uh, networking performance to 25 gigabit per second for the X1 instance type. So, um, but as I said, we didn't want to just stop with networking. We also had a challenge on the storage site. Um, because around that time, um, we saw an interesting transition in the IT technology. Uh, in the C3 uh, timeframes, um, we were using spinning disk. Um, and spinning disk didn't really advance that much in performance anymore. But around that time, SSDs became popular and even useful for enterprise uh, or server setups. So um, that was great, uh, but they provided a lot more throughput and um, a lot less latency. Um, with the old emulation system, that would have really been another bottleneck in the emulation system. So we needed to find a way to do that. Um, the new NVMe generation came out with, uh, uh, the, the new SSD uh, generation came out with NVMe as an interface, which was very interesting for us. So we took that uh, and included that into uh, the Nitro system. So uh, step number two, um, on the storage site was we moved um, to, uh, and that happened with the instance type i3, where you have local SSDs that are directly connected to um, this um, storage card, and that exposes an NVMe interface to the guest to access the storage device. And that was a significant boost in performance again. Um, NVMe at that point wasn't new. We actually had used this internally uh, for the G4 uh, for the C4 system already. Um, but at the time, the challenge with NVMe was that on the, on the instance side, the guest operating systems hadn't really picked up the proper NVMe driver. And uh, if they had, the stability was a bit of a challenge. So we couldn't expose that to the guest yet. Um, so we just 
put the NVMe to the NIC card from Annapurna and then expose the standard uh, PV interface um, to the guest or the pass-through. So that was the storage part. Um, obviously, well, there's still some work left because you can see the virtualization text got better, but again, we just gained the ability to have faster I.O., but the overhead remained the same. So we needed to get rid of that uh, management uh, partition. And for that, we created a new generation of Nitro cards with Annapurna that also included the management functionality. And um, you can't see that in the picture here, but we also exchanged the hypervisor. So the Zen hypervisor was replaced by the Nitro hypervisor. The Nitro hypervisor is a hypervisor that we have developed on our own based on KVM. Uh, KVM is the hypervisor included in the Linux uh, kernel. Um, so it wasn't actually much about writing new code. We did some of that, but um, that wasn't really that much code. Um, but the real work was cutting it down. So we uh, made sure that when we compiled uh, the Brimstone hypervisor or the uh, Nitro hypervisor, we um, eliminated all the functionality that we didn't need to reduce the attack surface of the hypervisor. And with the um, uh, movement of the management uh, functionality into the Nitro card, we were also able to eliminate the DOM0. So on a Nitro system today, and what you see here uh, resembles the C5 instance type that was announced two years ago here at reInvent. Um, and that system does not have a management partition anymore. There is no Linux system, there's no SSH, you cannot log in. It only has a very well-defined API uh, that provides the bare minimum of administrative functions that we need that mostly uh, revolves around uh, launching an instance, uh, terminating an instance if needed, and uh, yeah, extracting some performance and debug information. Uh, but um, uh, the main functionality is blocking off any access to the actual customer instances. So, well, that was the Nitro system. So we were almost done here, right? Uh, oh, by the way, um, the virtualization tax in that effort was significantly reduced. Um, the hypervisor is a real lightweight hypervisor now, is almost, uh, as we call it, quiescence. Um, it does not really need a lot of memory uh, or CPU cycles, so you really don't notice its existence anymore. Uh, we think that uh, for C5 and the later Nitro types, uh, with the biggest instance type, you will actually get all the cores and all the performance, so there is no performance difference compared to the same bare metal system anymore. So that was a big win for us because now we could enable even the high-end cases. If the Intel CPU had 48 CPUs, um, then you will see those 48 CPUs in your instance now. Good. As a next step, we even eliminated the hypervisor, at least for some. Um, 2018, we introduced the uh, Nitro bare metal systems. Um, so as we have completely um, offloaded all the management functionality um, into our special Nitro cards, um, we could have essentially gone uh, or, or do without a, um, a hypervisor. Um, that was, for example, very interesting for VMware. Um, you're probably aware that we have a corporation with VMware who runs uh, or has an offering of VMware on EC2. Um, obviously, they come with their own hypervisor. Um, you could obviously take an instance and try to nest a hypervisor. Um, that's theoretically possible. We don't support that right now. Um, that has some technical uh, reasons. Um, the um, security of the nested instance boundary isn't right now as big as good as we want it to be so that's why we do not support this use case at the moment um, but nevertheless if you remove our hypervisor then you can certainly put in your own hypervisor like vmware on there so those are the bare metal instances um, in case you're interested in um, uh, a really big box um, without a hypervisor on it so the nitro system um, 
The key components are the nitro cards. I talked about those quite a bit already. Those are cards that are essentially developed by Annapurna with Annapurna um, designed uh, specific chips um, that provide NVMe storage emulation, uh, obviously EBS emulation, uh, and any networking and monitoring uh, functionality. The second component is a security chip that I haven't talked about yet. Um, I'll do that in a minute though, so I'll skip that and just go to the hypervisor. That one I also talked about, it's a new hypervisor based on KVM that we're really happy with. Um, it is very small and um, the biggest win here probably was that it is so small that it's unnoticeable and it's so small that it doesn't have much of an attack surface anymore. So those are big, two big wins for us. So let's take a look at the Nitro security chip. Oh, before we go there, a uh, quick recap of what we actually gained by introducing the Nitro system. Um, obviously performance, I talked about that already. Um, you now have the full power of the system available to you, um, so that's good. Um, the security gains that I talked about, no dumb zero anymore. That is a big step up um, because um, if you don't have an admin that can log in um, as root, then, well, you, you don't really know what the admin is doing, right? Uh, there's this old saying, uh, as soon as somebody logs in with root to your server, he has destroyed all previous knowledge that everybody else had about the system. And in a setup like ours, where uh, we have many, many, many of these servers. Uh, your biggest enemy is uh, diversity uh, in the system. Like you don't want people to do manual operations on a shell. It just creates maintenance nightmare. And obviously, um, it's really hard to audit and control what somebody did on a box. Um, uh, so with the APIs that we now have, it's very easy. All the API calls are authenticated. Um, and they have a clearly defined function. If the API was called with a certain parameter or set of parameters, um, you can uh, um, uh, generate a, a, a tamper-proof lock and you know that um, exactly these operations were performed by that person. So that's a big win. And finally, the pace of innovation. Um, this is something that, um, well, we noticed obviously, um, maybe if you kept track of how many platforms or new instance type we introduced each year, you saw a significant jump uh, about two years ago. Um, we roughly um, quadrupled the number of new instance types we can introduce each year with the Nitro technology. Um, why is that? Well, with Nitro we were able to offer you new CPUs uh, for example, um, the introduction of ARM or AMD systems would have been significantly more complicated because we would have had to port the complete Zen hypervisor to these CPUs. Well, the open source community has done much of that work, but still, to make it work in our environment is a significant additional effort. Um, now, with the Nitro hypervisor, which is so much smaller, that was way less of an effort. So, uh, moving to a new CPU type with the Nitro architecture is actually relatively simple uh, and quick to do. So that's uh, for us a benefit, for you probably just a variety of instance types we can offer today. So security, um, let's dive into the Nitro chip as promised. What does it do? Well, not that much actually. Um, the Nitro chip is again from Annapurna. Um, it's a very simple microcontroller that does more or less two or three things. It traps all I.O. accesses to non-volatile memory. Um, I'll explain what that actually means in a second. Um, and then it controls the boot process. Um, it can do power management and, and can hold um, the reset line. Um, and it's controlled by one of the Nitro cards that is the um, uh, administrative card of the system. And it provides a very simple hardware-based root of trust. So what does that mean? Root of trust is something that 
is necessary. For example, if you want to make sure that when you boot up the system, that it boots to a known state, that all the software that is installed on that system, and that includes specifically things like firmware, BIOS, uh, drivers, etc., um, is exactly what you're expecting, that nobody tampered with this. Uh, it's essentially a temper protection mechanism. So uh, in the standard server world, um, that problem was solved with some great technology called UEFI, the firmware interface that replaced the BIOS. So UEFI has a great feature called Secure Boot. So what does that do? Well, it gives you exactly that information that it is that, that once you are in the operating system or in the hypervisor, you have the assurance that none of the critical components of the system have been tempered with. So to get there is a little bit more complicated. And I'll walk you quickly through that process. It's a simplified diagram, so bear with me. All you really need to do is before you execute a piece of software, you need to make sure that the cryptographic checksum matches a specific value that you are expecting. And that value is stored in a secure storage space. So before you start executing, you just do your cryptographic uh, checksum analysis. And then when it's good, when you know the integrity is uh, still there, you boot the code. And the first thing you boot is the early firmware. And um, what that does is essentially brings up some really basic functionality. And the next thing you need to bring up is the UFI boot manager. Again, before you boot the boot manager, you need to check the integrity. Once you have confirmed that it hasn't been tempered with, you can go to the next stage, um, the UEFI applications. I don't really know what you do with UEFI applications. It was probably something that server vendors introduced to provide independently from the S value at so that the server differentiates from anybody else's server because it has some cool graphic setup menu and other fancy functionality that you probably lead, need um, when you unbox the system and then never again. Um, nevertheless, it, it's in there, um, does its job, and then you need drivers because if you want to boot the OS, you need to actually find the right pieces. And finally, when that integrity check worked out, you get to boot an operating system, or a hypervisor for that matter. Great. That looks complex, right? Uh, a lot of work just to find out whether somebody actually had tempered with the system. To do that, you run about a million lines of code or more. Um, and I'm not so sure that these million lines of code do not have security issues that could be exploited. And if that happens, that whole exercise was useless because somebody just told you your system hasn't been tempered with, even though it was. So we were not really convinced that adding this to our system gives us what we want. So that's why we use the Nitro hardware. The Nitro hardware essentially solves the same problem. So don't get me wrong, UEFI has lots of other features that I haven't talked about, but we found that none of those matter for us. In, in the cloud environment, nobody looks at the shiny GUI you have on your server. Um, and all you want when you turn on the server is that it, as quickly as possible, it boots to your hypervisor or OS, right? Um, and uh, you can do without fancy boot animations and other things. So. We wanted to make sure that our system software, the firmware drivers, the BIOS, and whatever else is in the non-volatile uh, uh, um, uh, memory spaces on the main board haven't been tampered with. Well, we found out that if you block all writes to these areas, you have a pretty solid mechanism. Because if nobody can write to any of that, you can't tamper with it, no matter what the system does. If you have a hardware write protection mechanism, very similar to that little slider that, you know, in the old days, for those that are old enough to know 
the little diskette. Um, you just flipped that slider, and the system was right projected, right? No million lines of code needed. Very simple. So that's exactly what that little Nitro chip does for us. And um, yeah, it has a few more functionality. Really, you know, in terms of the boot process, um, it, you don't have to verify all the hard, uh, software components because, well, if you can't write to them, they can't be tempered with. A very simple system. Good. So let's look at all the improvements again. So integrity of the system. Um, we now know um, that when we boot a Nitro system, that it boots exactly the software that we wanted it to boot. Um, the availability was significantly increased because we were able to reduce complexity quite a bit. So whenever you reduce complexity, you have a good chance that your system becomes more stable. Um, in this case, we moved off all the complicated administrative functions and the emulation functions into special hardware that is built for exactly one purpose and does that purpose well. And then finally, we um, were able to significantly increase the confidentiality of your data because with the elimination of the DUM0, um, we have managed to remove any operator access, um, well, at least the one that is happening in uncontrollable ways, like logging in through SSH. Um, um, there is obviously still some uh, functionality to control the system, as I explained, but this one is easily auditable uh, and very strictly controlled. Now we have done all that. So we thought customers were happy, right? What, what else can you do? Well, we launched the Nitro system, and guess what? Customers came back to us and said, now that's all great, but we, we want more. So what are they looking for? Well, they told us about certain problems they have. They have data that they consider very sensitive, like personally uh, in, uh, identifiable information or healthcare medical information, intellectual property of all kinds, trade secret, and keys, cryptographic keys. Um, so there was lots of stuff that they have in their instance. And the next slide explains that problem. So when you run an instance, you need that data, right? You want to do something with it because, well, you have application running in your instance that serve a purpose. The challenge is that it is very hard to control access to that instance because, A, you have to trust the security access control mechanisms of the operating system that you run in your instance. And as we have found out, that sometimes has issues. So uh, somebody that you don't actually want to be root can become root or admin. Not great, right? Because once that is the final boundary, uh, a border has been crossed and, and you have a problem because then usually you can access every information on the system. So how do you solve that? Well, there have been smart people that have tried to solve that. Um, and they came up with an interesting approach. Uh, this is now uh, usually called confidential computing. And what you do is the following. Uh, let's assume you have the following problem here. Um, you have some file that contains credit card information. And you need that to uh, confirm a transaction. Um, what you really need to do uh, if you want to do the transaction, it's actually not, you, need, you don't need the actual credit card number, but you need a token that is derived from that credit card number. And the token um, is of much less value than the actual credit card number. Um, but still, it's, it's, it's all in the same instance, right? Unless you do what we see here, um, that functionality that generates that token is moved to another instance. So you now have the great instance boundary between your applications or parts of your application. And um, if the main instance that runs your application service or service gets somehow um, uh, tempered with, they can get access to the tokens that the other instance is serving 
but they can't get access to the encrypted file or the um, uh, information in there, specifically the credit card information, right? So that instance, the second instance, is highly protected. Uh, so only very few people can access this. You can use IM and all the glory on, a on AWS to do that. Um, and it essentially serves the purpose. But it's a pretty hefty mechanism to solve a problem, right? Uh, you now have to deal with two instances. Um, two instead of one, you doubled the number of instances you need to care about. Um, you probably also increased the cost because running another instance costs you a bit more money. And um, yeah, then uh, while the tokenizing application doesn't have much of a challenge there, uh, but assume you have something like a video uh, encryptor or decryptor, suddenly perform the throughput and latency through the network connection also becomes potentially a problem in your uh, design, right? You don't want to have another instance with all the complexity, the latency, and the throughput restrictions. So that was the problem that our customers uh, talked to us about. Uh, I mean, we could have said, well, great, we earn a little bit more money, and your problem is solved, right? Why do you keep complaining? Well, we're Amazon, so we looked at this and said, well, there is room for improvement. And the room for improvement that we found has now a name. It's called Nitro Enclaves. Nitro Enclaves is a feature that we announced um, yesterday. For those that followed Andy's keynote very, very carefully, you saw it on the slides, but Andy didn't talk much to it. But my boss, Dave Brown, had a, a presentation uh, around noon yesterday uh, where he went into a little bit more detail. So now I give the whole story. Well, not yet the whole story, but at least more detail so you know what Nitro enclaves are and how you can use this in your application. So remember, um, we wanted to partition off the uh, critical information, right? Um, so that is done by putting this into the Nitro Enclave. So what is a Nitro Enclave? Essentially think of it something like a container, maybe, although it's not a container, but it's somewhat in the same direction, right? It is completely isolated from the rest of the world. It doesn't have network connection. It doesn't have access to local storage. It only has a local communication channel um, that connects to the parent instance. So that's what you use to exchange information. So how is this actually implemented? Um, well, when we think of isolation, um, for us, the isolation that we care most about is the boundary between instances. If we have servers that run instances from different customers, then obviously the last thing we want is that whatever one instance is doing can affect another instance or even access data from another instance. At the same time, we also need to protect the hypervisor. Um, well, that's open source, so if you want to steal our hypervisor, that's okay, but um, still, we don't want you to get into our hypervisor. So we have this instance boundary that we have years of experience protecting that. It's not trivial to do that. Uh, for those that have followed the security industry recently, um, we rely a lot on hardware support for that. Um, and if it turns out that the hardware isolation that you think is there isn't exactly as strong as you had hoped for, that is a problem. And uh, for the past two years, um, these problems had really fancy names, Spectre, Meltdown, uh, L1 terminal fault, and so on. So nevertheless, this is very critical to AWS business, right? So we invest a lot of time and money making sure that that boundary is safe. So it was natural for us to say, okay, if we create an enclave that lives on the same server, we again have to use our well-served uh, um, protection mechanisms to isolate that enclave. Now there's one slight difference 
Um, the enclave obviously needs to have this communication channel between the instance that created the enclave and um, the enclave itself. So I said the instance is created by um, the, uh, the enclave is created by the instance. And that is actually somewhat different from the normal model, right? And usually you trigger all your operations from the control plane through the API. Not so for enclaves. Enclaves is something that is owned by the instance. And this is even reflected in the way they are created. So when you create an, an enclave from your instance, what you do is you specify how much memory and how many cores you want to give from your main instance to the enclave. And as soon as the enclave is being launched, the ownership of these resources, memory, as well as um, the um, CPU cores, gets transferred over to the enclave. So the instance n has no longer access to it. It does not own the memory it's own. So what's the benefit of that? Um, well, it's running essentially within the old box that your instance was taking, right? Um, so for us, that means, well, you do something on the instance. Yes, there is an enclave, and there is a little overhead for us to manage that. But we don't charge you for that. It's essentially cost neutral to you. And it has another benefit, um, because um, you can specify how much memory and how many cores you want to pass. There's one restriction. Because of the um, security issues I talked about earlier, um, it is not wise to only give half a core pair to an enclave. So when you give cores to an enclave, you always have to give two at a time. Um, and that, again, has to do with the way um, Intel CPUs manage data and the way side channels can be misused. Uh, you don't really want to have a side channel that allows you to read data across the instance or enclave boundary. So uh, because of that, you need to give two cores at a minimum. You give, give four, eight, uh, six. That's all fine, but uh, no odd numbers. Good. When you launch that, you have it running, and it's then essentially completely isolated, except for this VSOC channel. I'll talk a little bit about the VSOC channel in a second, but um, I want to talk about some of the other uh, features we also have there. Um, it is compatible with all Nitro-based instances, or many of the. Uh, we, we, we're not sure yet if we offer it across all of them. Uh, technically, that is doable, but we will look at um, some of the customer feedback. Um, there's another feature I haven't talked about. Um, it's cryptographic attestation. So um, the instance can verify that it is launching the right enclave image. The enclave can verify that it is talking to the right instance. And also, it can itself identify to the outside world because we have AWS KMS support. KMS is our key management system. So if you store a key in KMS, then that key can get passed to the enclave, which, for example, the enclave can use to decode data. Um, and the enclave, again, can authorize itself against the KMS system so that it, the KMS system knows that it is allowed to pass the key. Why is that important? Well, as I said, the communication channel goes directly through the parent instance. And there are many cases when you don't want to have your data visible, but you need to pass it through. So any data that is loaded at runtime into the enclave needs to be encrypted. And the key is only available inside the enclave, which it can then use to decrypt the data and then process the data. The instance itself will not have access to the key, so it cannot decrypt the data. It doesn't know what's in there. To build an enclave, uh, we will provide an SDK. Um, again, you can think a little bit you know, in terms of Docker and Docker images, um, although it, it's not a Docker image, and uh, um, there are some slight differences. 
But just in terms of if you have used it before as a mechanism, that's a good thought to have in mind in terms of the complexity of how easy or complicated is it to create um, those images. So, um, the communication channel. Um, we have decided to use VSOC. Uh, VSOC is a virtual socket. Um, a virtual socket, you can think of it as a network connection. The complexity of dealing with that, um, uh, it has a 32-bit content identifier, um, which resembles an IPv4 address, essentially. Um, it also has a port number, so if you have multiple services in the enclave that you want to talk to, you have addresses to um, um, use them. Um, the VSOC uh, content identifier can be used to talk to multiple enclaves. At the moment, we only support one, but technically, it is certainly possible to have even multiple enclaves associated with a single instance. I don't know whether that makes sense. We'll listen to customer feedback um, to see uh, if that is really needed. Um, but um, yeah, we, we have that capability. It's uh, in the design. So um, we'll see if we're going to enable this or not. So coming back to our little example, um, how would that look in the um, world of uh, Nitro Enclaves? Well, you still have your instance that is running the actual application. Um, it also provides the encrypted file, but it is encrypted, as I said. It, the key is only available in the enclave that was launched by the instance. And in the enclave, you have the tokenizing application. So it then reads the encrypted file uh, that is sent over the uh, VSOC channel. It decodes it with the key it got directly from the KMS system. It can extract the credit card information. It can generate the token and pass the token back. In case somebody gains access, um, unauthorized access to your instance, all they can do is generate tokens. But they can't get to the key or the um, credit card information. So this is a significant win. Even if they are root in the instance, there is no way they get to uh, any data inside of the enclave, except for whatever gets back through the API as a regular function. But you have significantly contained your blast radius now. So that is essentially the benefit of the, tokenization, uh, of the Nitro Enclave technology. Good. Let's wrap it up. Um, we have announced it, as I said. Um, it's not there yet. Um, we will launch a private preview first. Um, early Q1, we just need to get through reInvent, rest a bit, and then uh, the holidays are coming, and after the holidays, uh, we'll, we'll look into uh, launching that as a preview. If you're interested, you can sign up today for the private preview. It's limited availability, so probably first come, first serve. Make sure you go to this link and um, uh, register for the preview if you're interested to try it out. Um, during the preview phase, we are very open to feedback. Um, this is a completely new technology. We didn't reinvent, uh, well, we didn't invent enclaves. Uh, there have been many uh, or several options uh, out on the market for doing enclaves. Uh, we looked at them. We didn't like any of them. They all come with certain drawbacks that we really didn't like um, that also our customers told us like, yeah, the amount of memory is restricted. It's super painful to deal with uh, images. You can't run a kernel in our operating system inside an enclave. While we try to address all that, um, nevertheless, it is probably not perfect yet. Um, or it may not exactly meet the needs of your specific setup or application. So encourage you to join the preview. Um, take a look at what you can do with it and provide us feedback. That is very important. OK, with that, thanks a lot for staying with me. and. Uh, Hopefully this was helpful. Um, you can give me feedback uh, with the survey and the session. Please do that. I'd like to improve whatever I can improve here as well. We have a bit of time for questions. So since we are in the silent setup, my co-host is uh, 
coming around with the microphone, please raise your hand. Um, and then uh, she's coming with the microphone. Please wait until the microphone is there. Um, and oh yeah, I have a problem. Hang on. Okay, good. So I can hear you now. Please go ahead. Hi. Uh, you mentioned that the use case was uh, retrieving a KMS key directly from within the, the enclave. Uh, is it possible for those enclaves to have IAM roles that are separate from the host? Um, yeah, so you're asking about IAM integration. Right? Uh, sorry, the applause kind of killed the parts of the question. Um, uh, no, right now not, uh, because... Oh, okay. Um, right now not, because the enclave is created by the instance, and the instance doesn't have access to IAM. Um, we're looking into options of providing you IAM uh, a control there. Um, it's something we certainly have in mind. We're not sure yet if it's really something that people want because we have a very tight control over um, uh, the interface already. But we are looking into that. And that's good feedback. If you have specific uh, things in mind, please come and talk to us. Thank you. Any, anybody else? I saw somebody up here. Here in the front. Uh, you mentioned that uh, um, EFI provides functionality that isn't very useful in a cloud setting. Uh, are you looking into replacing it with something like Core Boot? Um, not really at the moment. Um, we boot relatively rarely, so all the problems of the boot process um, are not ha haven't created enough pain yet that we've looked at alternatives. Um, but um, yeah, the BIOS is an interesting field for us. We are working with the BIOS vendors uh, to do more and more ourselves. Um, so we'll see. But in the end, that's pretty transparent to you, right? Uh, how we boot our boxes is really not visible to the customer. Well, I, I was thinking of partly. I was thinking of partly the uh, the noise that system management mode can introduce into uh, latency. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, that, that's obviously a concern. So for those that are not familiar with uh, system management mode, it's a really great feature, again, to provide value at. So um, behind the scenes, system management mode kicks in and does all kinds of fancy things, stealing UCPU cycles. Um, this is obviously a problem we've realized quite a while ago, and uh, we have intensely talked to our uh, suppliers. And since we're doing more and more of the systems ourselves, uh, we have eliminated most of these things, so uh, I think our our servers um, behave very well in that respect. We can't eliminate it completely, but it's literally invisible uh, today. Okay, more questions? You mentioned uh, tokenization in your example, but tokenization systems typically require a vault, right, which maps the plain text to the token. So how would you build a vault uh, with this approach? Because that means keeping the mapping elsewhere, whereas this mechanism requires the plain text to be only decrypted inside the enclave. So did you mean encryption, like format-preserving encryption or something when you have this tokenization example? Um, you mean the specific example? Yes. Yeah, it was just to illustrate a case here. Um, uh, anything where you have... Um, data that you need to process in clear to make use of this would fit in this example. Uh, so um, whether you have credit card information or anything else, um, as soon as you don't want the instance to have access to this data, the enclave would give you some benefits here. And this can range from the simple token, but also like if you want to encrypt or decrypt a movie, uh, uh, and only have the keys accessible inside the enclave, that would work as well. Just one quick follow-up question. So the encryption, is this asymmetric encryption where the enclave has a private key and the sender has a public key, or is this asymmetric? Um, that's totally up to you. Okay. Um, you can completely control the content of your uh, enclave. Like If you want to use your own encryption, you can do that. This is not something that we will provide. We will provide most likely a few example enclaves. Uh, a, just for illustration purposes, and B, 
probably for some common use cases as well, so that you don't have to write your enclave from scratch. Um, but we haven't made any decisions in that regard yet. Uh, quick yeah. question regarding this uh, secure local channel uh, mechanism. W would it work in a containerized environment, for example? You have containers running on the instance and you need to talk to the secure enclave? Um, yes, the VSOC channel is uh, a very generic mechanism, so there are plenty of uh, libraries for all kinds of programming languages to talk to VSOC. Um, obviously, you need to adapt your application to build around this architecture. Uh, but yeah, there's nothing uh, that would stop you from doing that in containers. Um, hi, thanks Thanks for the presentation. Um, essentially, uh, Enclave's workloads are going to be CPU bound. They're, they don't have storage access, neither network access. Um, I, I, just for my technical curiosity, have you thought about nesting the Enclave inside the instance? Uh, what do you mean by nesting? By running the, uh, the, the, the enclave as a VM inside the, uh, the EC2 instance itself. Yeah, um, that would only be possible through nested virtualization. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and there, as I mentioned in the presentation, um, we, we've looked carefully at that use case and, and we're not yet convinced that the uh, security boundary that the nested hypervisor can create is actually as rigid as we would like it. And um, we don't want to put something out there where people can shoot themselves in the foot because it kind of looks like it works, works nicely. So you can um, put in a hypervisor, nested, uh, run nested instances, um, and it all looks great except when the first bad guy comes along and then finds a way to uh, penetrate the boundary of the nested instances. Even if you would be running the... Sorry. Sorry, even in, when running, if, if you would be running the Nitro hypervisor inside the, the EC2 instance? So, it, I mean, if, you, if you're concerned about the security boundary of, of the hypervisor, uh, is that because you, you would assume that the hypervisor running inside the EC2 instance wouldn't be Nitro uh, for nesting? It could be any hypervisor, and the problem is generic. Uh, so the nested hypervisor has significant other challenges uh, that, uh, because it, can't, it doesn't get the same support uh, for hardware virtualiz uh, for hardware virtualization that the first level hypervisor gets, and that's the challenge. Oh, okay, I see. I see. Thank you. Okay, we have a few more minutes, so if there are more questions. Um, I was wondering about uh, the memory limitations. Are there any uh, inside the enclave? You mentioned the CPU had to be two power of two in the set of two. What about memory? Um, is there the, memory, uh, the amount of memory you can give a, uh, away is really based on the amount of memory you have in the instance. Uh, um, but there are no limited, well, limited there's just some lower limits. boundary uh, and the upper boundary is, well, you, you'd still need to run your own instance, right? I so see. something okay. needs to be left. Uh, but usually for, for big instance types, if you really want to push it, probably you can give more than 90% of your memory of the instance to the enclave if you choose to do so. It depends a little bit on, on your um, I see. Okay. Uh, instance and how it manages memory. There is a bit of a challenge to do that and we're still working on that. But generally, no, we, we don't have a hard limit. If you're running on an X1 that has two terabytes and you want to give 1.9 terabyte to your uh, enclave, you can do that. I see. So it's different from SGX in that sense, that there, are no, there is no limitation. Yeah, that's I've one of the uh, limitations of SGX that we didn't right. like. Uh, and okay. that, that doesn't apply to Nitro Enclaves. What else? Are, how's, how does it compare with SGX? Obviously, you're not using uh, You want to leave me on thin ice here, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's hard to compare with competing technologies. Uh, what I can say is that... Um, Due to the last the experience we gained with Intel technology in the last two years, we're not the biggest fan of the way how they handle security. And if you followed the news, then um, the SGX technology had significant security issues in the past, and I'm not sure that they all have been addressed. Uh, but for us, the challenge is always if we expose something like this to our customers, we need to be in control of any measure to deal with security issues, right? It doesn't help us if there's a security issue found and Intel says, well, you know, in six months you get a new microcode that fixes the problem and leave our customers exposed for six months. That just doesn't work for us. We 
we need something that is uh, under enough and under our control that we can guarantee the security of the service at all times. How is the KMS integration works? Like, uh, is it via the instance type, or because there is only one channel, right? As you mentioned, local channel, and then KMS will be accessible by an IAM role. So, whether the EC2 instance should have the IAM role or the enclave? Yeah, the initial uh, access is actually through the hypervisor. Um, so, uh, but um, and this is true for any other uh, communication. I mean, we have the VSOC channel. If you put some proxies on both ends you can certainly provide next network access to the enclave as well, right? You can just channel it through the uh, instance proxy it into the VSOC channel so that the enclave can then get the network connection. If you want to do that, that is certainly possible. If you do that, it creates additional security challenges. So um, in some cases that may be useful, in others probably not. But um, it's not too complicated. We actually have an example that does exactly that, that essentially gives you full network access in the enclave again uh, by proxying it over the VSOC channel. Hey, uh, so I have a question about the Nitro system in general. Could it possibly resolve the instance uh, hardware degradation problem in which we have to stop start the instance and uh, have the uh, like underneath hardware change? Um, yeah, um, we, uh, as you could see from the diagrams, we, we have achieved a significant decoupling uh, from the, 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 between the instance and, and the underlying hardware, right? Uh, what you see now in the Nitro system from the enclave is just virtual interfaces. You, you do not have direct access to any underlying hardware anymore. And um, that separates the hardware from um, the, the instance from the hardware. Um, so um, it, it is possible to take the instance and move it to some other hardware, yes. Actually, my question was about having a hardware failure and uh, we receive a notification quite often saying that uh, we have to stop and start the instance so that the uh, hardware is changed. Yeah, um, that really depends on the, the failure pattern, right? Um, sometimes this is possible. Uh, sometimes not. Uh, moving an instance between hardware is, if you have local storage, not really helpful, right? Uh, also, if you have lots of memory, it's very active, then it's a hard problem. Okay, thanks. So following up on a question about containers, so this is all about EC2 instance and stuff like that. So how does this design carry over into a container design? So. I would imagine you know the application itself is a containerized application. The enclave could be modeled as another container, and then the two are talking over that VSOC, and the both could be running inside the pod. So is that possible? I think so. Um, you probably at this point want to have the ability to run multiple enclaves, um, uh, because in the container world, you, you, you don't want to make, well, it's really, pesky if you have to check, is there anybody else running an enclave at the moment? So uh, we, you need multi-enclave support. As I said, theoretically, this is possible. Right now, the first design doesn't have all the features yet, uh, but I could see that coming in the future very well. So, and, and at that point, yes, you can run from your container. You, you can launch your own enclaves anytime. Uh, you do run out-of-CPU course, course at some point, right? <laughs> because you, you need to always give them into pair, so uh, if you have a 30, uh, 48 core system, then um, yeah, uh, yeah CPU you course can run is 23 not uh, enclaves, right? Just a follow-up comment on that, so CPU course is not exactly a concern, the concern would be horizontal auto-scaling, right? So if there's design with the you know, pod auto-scaling or EC2 auto-scaling, we can achieve a scalable system, that would be the goal of that, to containerize this architecture. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not too familiar with how container setups are usually run. Uh, obviously, the instance owns the enclave, so uh, you in the instance need to make sure that if you need the enclave, you launch it, and then you terminate the enclave again. 
So I don't know how, how easy that is transferable to your specific container setup. So we have 18 more seconds here. Uh, so one more question and then we're done. Um, do you did you um, do, do you have some details on the uh, encryption uh, technology on the uh, over uh, the VSOC channel? Did you talk about this? Maybe I missed it. Um, there there is no. Uh, you can do that if you want to, right? Um, so uh, if you want to send encrypted data over the VSOC channel, but the VSOC channel is only accessible on one end to the instance, on the other end to the enclave. What's the point of encrypting that? Yeah, that, so I, I was I was actually wondering about this, and because uh, uh, I, I I understood that this the, the VSOC channel was encrypted, and I wasn't sure what what was the point. No. Of it, so I misunderstand yeah. you. Sorry, sorry if that wasn't clear. Okay. Uh, the VSOC channel is not encrypted. So if you, yeah, yeah, if you want, you can do encryption decryption. There wouldn't the be end, any point because it, the, it, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't bring anything. Much. Yes, thank you. Okay, I'll be around for questions, uh, but I need to give up this podium here because there will other presenters coming. Thanks a lot.